Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello, this is Stephen Coates of the Bureau of Lost Culture. The Bureau of Lost Culture digging up, reconstituting, revivifying lost countercultural stories. Those kind of stories that you might find in the attic if your great uncle had been a beat poet. This episode is the second of two. We're going to rejoin our guest, Nick Laird Clues, to the second part of the conversation as he takes us on a very personal tour of the English underground musical scene of the 60s and 1970s. In the last episode, we heard the extraordinary tales of his youth. Met the Beatles, written to John Lennon, been on protest marches, been to the Isle of Wight Festival, DJed at the Roundhouse before most of us had even smoked our first cigarette. And this is long before he achieved fame and fortune with his band The Dream Academy and then went on to be a film composer and all sorts of other things. We rejoin Nick and my colleague and collaborator Paul Hartfield as we're listening to Sly and the Family Stone with You Got Me Smiling. You Got Me Smiling. Ah, that was got us smiling. Ah. Nick smiling. Ah. <laughs> you get a log there. 1971. I mean, you know, I got this May thing. I watched uh, Woodstock for the first time. I always didn't really like the film at the time, but I watched it recently again, uh, maybe 10 years ago. And I was like, my God, everyone has dated, but nobody, the future was in one band there. Sly and the Family Stone. It's funny because hey, you, you say 71, but I wouldn't have guessed that. You, you I mean, couldn't. You, you, he was so ahead of his time. Mm. And when you see him in 69 at, the, uh, uh, at Woodstock, he's got a multiracial band, men, women. It, the sound, the funk, they're dressed in spacesuits. <laughs> they were... Who would have had the, the money... If the money had been used or 10 years after, or it would have been some other thing. You would not have said that was leading the way and everything was going that way. And and it still feels completely modern. There's no distortion. Yeah, it's, it's so so fresh. Also loose as well. I mean, like that jumped all over the place. Yeah, and well. Then, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. I mean, isn't that fascinating? Because in a way, that's a very different feel than some of that heavier political countercultural stuff that's going on, isn't it? It's very sort of summery and breezy and groovy and. And yet, that album's called There's a Riot going right. on, and it was right. heavily political. Right. But he wasn't above, you know, the politics of love. There's a right. family affair, and you've caught yeah. me smiling again. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what he had to be caught, but I suspect <laughs> it, he was up to no good, <laughs> Sylvester. <laughs> um, I, before we sort of uh, go too far from uh, um, these shores, um, 
You mentioned uh, somebody a couple of times, and actually, in terms of uh, uh, the, the the groupy thing that you mentioned earlier, we had Jenny Fabian in here. God, you've had everyone. <laughs> so she. Oh, the good fast, very fast. I'm not sure if you'd slide, but uh, there's various people in there. But the figure that sort of is ghostly behind uh, many of these stories, we we had your neighbour Sam Hutt in, you know, and um, Hank Wankford. Uh, and what who often comes up in these stories, you've mentioned him twice, of course, is Sid Barrett. And I think there's something about Sid Barrett was there that sums up both sides of the story somehow, doesn't it? The kind of amazingly wonderful fairy side of it. And then this sort of seeping darkness. And the pure art leading to the demise of the character. But, you know, he was just extraordinary. You're right, it brings actually the two cultures, the American and the British together, because there's a famous story, I think Pete Jenner told me, that uh, they were in America, I think Jenner, and they were... uh, Sid said, oh, the music, the music, what's it like? And they, he said, it's incredible, this psychedelic thing happening and you've got to hear. And they played Love uh, they, over the phone, a uh, little red book, I think, dap, 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 da, 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 which was a, a, a Bacharach song, in fact. But anyway, it was on the first Love album. And Sid heard it and immediately wrote something, one of the absolute classics, based on what he'd heard down the phone (laughs) on his idea of what American psychedelia was, but through an English filter. He bought that very English uh, mixture of the blues, Mm. art school, whimsy, psychedelia. He was a crucial, crucial figure and a, a true, true artist. I mean, when he left... Floyd, you know, in the end when he was taking and he was painting and he was mm. alone and going through all the machinations, I mean, much, 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 much later in his life, he, he'd he do the paintings and then he'd destroy them. Right, yeah. And that was, yeah. that was how real it was yeah, for yeah. him. Actually, we should just mention, because, of course, um, you organised the, um, the the Sid Barrett Memorial Concert, didn't yeah. you, after he yeah, died? With back Joe in, Boyd, yeah. With Joe Boyd, like, yeah. back in 2006. Yeah. What, what's, what inspired you to do that? I mean... Joe Boyd, who I'd known for years and had actually produced an album before my band, The Dream Academy, my band, The Act, he'd produced an album uh, for me uh, called Too Late at 20. And um, he had just written White Bicycles, his brilliant book on the counterculture and his life. Um, And he said, I've been asked to do the memorial concert for Sid Barrett by the Barbican, and I've got to go and promote my book. I'm not even quite sure how I'd do it. Do you want to have a think about it? And uh, I'll call you on Monday. So I, he called on Monday and I said, right, the good old days on acid. And he said, don't say anything. <laughs> Come straight down. I'm going to pick you up. We're going to go straight to the barbican, pitch it straight to them. Well, be- before, we, <laughs> before we say that, let's give a bit of context for somebody who doesn't oh, know I'm the, sorry. Go- the good the old days. The good old days was an Edwardian-style uh, programme that was on late at night on television through the 60s and early 70s that had, oh, ladies and gentlemen, oh, you'll be stupid, and people swinging from sort of uh, uh, seats, and it was the um, Edwardian musical. Vaudeville. Uh, vaudeville, thank you, Vaudeville. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting is that Edwardian culture, for some strange psychedelic reason in the psychedelic mind, was very much informed. The 
Beatles, uh, the and and psych and British psychedelia. It was part of it, and possibly it even went to America too. I don't know why, but I suddenly felt if you could do, the Good Old Days had. Twelve songs, mm. and they were, you know, people dressed up in Edwardian costumes and would do the old famous songs, you know, underneath the arches or whatever it was. And I thought, Sid, this is this is it. So, luckily, the Barbican went for it. And Joe, every couple of weeks, he'd come back and say, "Where are we? What have we got?" And he'd started off very nicely with um, with uh, the Who and Bowie. Said so they'd do it. So it's like, well, I don't think this is going to be too difficult. Who have you got? Right, exactly. So then we found out. Um, I started having to really work, so I, I went to huge lengths to find that I could be in a place where Chrissy Hind, Chrissy Hind's manager, was going to be. And I joined a friend there, and uh, and I just sort of dropped into the conversation. I'm doing this thing, and I said, I wonder if Chrissy'd like to do it. And she said, oh, I don't know if Chrissy liked the Floyd, she said, rolling her eyes. And she said, well, I'll ask her. And I said, well, it's, it's for Sid. And uh, so the next day, um, I get a call from Joe saying... Um, Pete Townsend says the Who need more rehearsal for their tour, and um, and uh, Bowie's pulled out. So it's like, oh, 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 right, okay. And just at that moment, I see that my car's about to get a ticket, and I'm running to the thing when my phone goes. Nick, Chrissy Hind, Chrissy, I just look. I'm about to get a. T- uh, listen, hey, I loved Sid. Um, when I lived with Nick um, Kent, I was like, oh, you lived with Nick Kent? When I lived with Nick Kent, um, the great uh, journalist, friend, uh, rock and roll journalist, when I lived with Nick Kent, we, that's all we listened to was the Mad Cat Laughs. Uh, uh, and, hey, so who have you got? I said, uh, I'm, um, I've got, uh, well, we had the who and boy, <laughs> um, but they've just dropped out. Um, fuck them, she said. She said, fuck them. I'll do it anyway. Uh, you know what? Even if it's only me. If it's me and you, what? we'll do it. So it's like, okay. fantastic. Why don't you come over and we'll just go through my, my, my address book and see what we can get. And that's what we did for about three days. She was brilliant. I've never um, I've lost my... Um, I always I loved her work, but it was when I saw how she, how she threw herself into it with me. I think... In all fairness, after about three days, and we'd called the West Coast when it would open up, and she'd get on to um, the Pistols guitarist, you know, everyone who knew everyone, and everybody was called. I think we just got Kevin Ayres out of it, but uh, but still, hey, he was brilliant. Well, you see, it's interesting because the, the fact that they were they were actually up for it at all was testament to sort of Sid, Sid's appeal, isn't it? Because you're right. I mean, you can imagine lots of people saying, "Oh, it's Pink Floyd." I'm not Pink Floyd, but Quite. Sid Barrett. I mean, yeah. Paul, Paul's Paul's mate, John Lydon, of course, is, was was another. Uh, Barrett fan, right, wasn't yeah, he? And, yeah. um, you know, uh, despite the sort of pistols wearing um, we fucking ate Pink Floyd yes, T-shirts, um, uh, he, he loved Barrett, not, didn't he? Yes, so. not Sid's Pink Floyd. I mean, mm. they were, it, it was, it was, you know, he was the real thing. And what an influence uh, he had. But funny you mention um, John Lydon because... I think you know they they liked a lot more uh, what you might have called happy music. I rem- on my twenty first birthday, I remember lying down in a room with about eight, nine, ten other people, and one of them was uh, <laughs> Steve Jones. Steve Jones, hi Joe. He was lying in there too, right. and somebody put on "Empty Glass" by Pete Townsend, and uh, 
and he went and it was rough boys was the track and he went what's this and he, he managed to get up and get step over all the bodies and go down and he went Pete fucking Townsend amazing you know so they were there was more to it than uh, wasn't it and the can I mean everyone loved can yeah Joe Lydon was his Van der Graaff generator he was a Van der Graaff generator hey. film, wasn't he? so, yeah. well uh, are you ready for another part of it because so. there was what happened was at a little bit later these bands would come in and there'd be a big buzz and you'd hear this American band coming in and the new one was going to be this guy, uh, this, this band, the Stooges, with this guy, Iggy Stooge, as he was called. Uh, and all the countercultural people said, we're going to have this all-nighter at a club in Leicester Square called Bumpers. So we all bought our tickets and uh, I was selling Oz magazine now on the streets and getting some money to do it so we got our tickets and it was he was going to be there and there was this big buzz and there were it was a benefit for something probably Oz again and uh, but an all nighter for a 15 year old when you got school the next morning it was pretty tough and after a while you know you'd run out of grown ups that you could talk to and i started to feel awfully tired so i wandered into the gents as you might and just tried to sort of splash some water on my face until I'd kill about 10 or 15 minutes in there i came out of the cubicle and i and i i got i'm standing at the urinal and this guy comes up and he's got silver leather trousers so not thinking this is a bit forward uh, i finish urinating i say to him i turn to him i say great trousers and he says really hey thanks kid uh my name's iggy i said Ig- iggy you didn't oh. shake hands did you? <laughs> I, I i think well, i thought it was his hand it was rolled it was something anyway uh and uh and he said if you'd like to come and see me at my hotel why don't you like drop in and see me i'm, I'm staying at the uh, royal garden overlooking the park uh, in in Kensington high street so it's like Oh, sure. So I went out and I talked to my friends and then everything went off. And next day I went to school and he'd given me his number. And I, I, oh, I, took it. I don't know his number, maybe he hadn't. And no, he had. He'd said, come on. And I said, I have to come off to school. I'd taken an older friend because I thought he, he, he had, a, you know, he had platinum hair and silver trousers. He, it was, mm. I wasn't sure. So uh, I went. And I went up to the room and he had an electric guitar lying on the bed and he asked, what, 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 would, what would you like to drink? And I said, drink. Like, I didn't drink. <laughs> so I racked my brains. Creme de Moth? <laughs> he ordered me a Creme de Moth. Um, he told me all about drugs and why you didn't want to take heroin. I mean, it was very interesting. Wow, what that's interesting. Yeah. So hold on a second. So you, you, you're telling us that you got a lecture on the ills and risks of Drug abuse from Iggy Pop? Yeah, Iggy Stooge. But Iggy that Stooge was Iggy Pop. But I, it was nice that he felt that he wanted to mm. say that. So mm. he, he really talked about how mm. if there was anything in the... It, it, all drugs were okay, but if, if that was in the room, you would crawl over broken glass to get it. And the point is it could wreck your life. Uh, presumably he was saying it had wrecked his. Mm. But... We, I finished my creme de month and my friend talked a bit more about things that Iggy probably knew, you know, like uh, Motor City and things. And, uh, and then he said, um, I'm doing these concerts at King's Cross. Would you, we'll put, I'll put you guys on the door. Do you want to come down? And he was so polite and sweet. He said, yeah, love to. The raw power 
uh, cover was shot there by Mick Rock. Uh, we went to King's Cross. It was late at night when he came on. They came on stage. I mean, I, w- I was used to listening to the kind of music we've been playing. I mean, I was hip to the... And I'd seen the MC5 doing... Sh- kick out the jams and things but still music was changing the drugs were changing this was what the counterculture my counterculture seemed to love these guys they were the, they were the hippest hippest thing and went there and on comes Iggy and the thing takes off like a rocket it's it's insane the power that's coming off the stage and people are banging on the stage and a guy has his hand on the stage and Iggy goes up and stands on the guy's hand until <laughs> and then and then he smashes a beer bottle a bit later on and slices into his chest it was it was unbelievable at some point the PA goes mad the feedback and he starts singing the shadow of your smile he was incredible and afterwards we went back to see him and he was back to that real sweet, mild-mannered <laughs> James Osterberg thing. Hey, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Good, good. Hey. Well, I was very good, yeah. And then I went pretty well, I think. And uh, I would love to play uh, Search and Destroy, because that's apparently the first time he ever played it. Yeah, so punk. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Incredible. I mean, you think about the uh, the punks. You could sort of hear it all in there. Can all in there. Yeah, Johnny Rotten was there. there. I mean, it, uh, watching it, that is the sound of punk, and and it's so incredible that he had it. Because, uh, uh, you know, t- to me, when I first started listening to him, it was like, surely he wants to be Jim Morrison, was I was mm. thinking, my 15-year-old self was thinking, you know, that, that and, and it just isn't. But, God, it's... And actually, well, you know, with with Twink, you know, it's interesting because, of course, he went through that sort of journey as well, from this kind of, you know, gentle psychedelic stuff into some quite kraut rocky yeah. punk stuff, you know, at the same time. And actually, that brings us back to West London, I think, and you, actually. But just before we do that, Paul, why don't we give us a few more, just to set the scene of that countercultural uh, space, give us a couple more IT small ads. Guy, 22, and girlfriend, 24, and child, 3, seek accommodation in Commune in London, fairly central, will bring in regular money, artistically, musically, endued, endued even, etc. Friendly offers to Martin Sue, 15 Birch Street, Ashton under Lyme, Lancashire. My neck of the woods. Long-haired joiner. Was that you? <laughs> Was that you at some point? <laughs> 26 years, own pad, on good scene. Most sincere needs wick to share experiences, expenses, etc. I think chicken or something that's meant to be. Yeah, I'm just says wick. I'm going to go with the wick. Okay, for indefinite period, suit nurse or similar type. No nonsense, please. Wonderful. <laughs> please, could you help? The girl I have spent the last five years with has left and is having another guy's child. I'm really broken up by it. The only hope I have of getting her back is by getting a pad in or around Victoria Station. I know it sounds mad, but it really would get us back together. So please, would you answer this ad? 
any pad will do around Victoria. If there's any guy or chick with a pad that they don't want to lose but won't be using for a few months, if they're going to the US or something, I really need a place. David Martin, 44 Earls Court Road, Kensington. Bless him. Quite specific there on the Victoria Station thing. Yeah. I don't think that relationship was bound for success somehow. No. <laughs> Feels what it's going to take if you had to get a pad specifically <laughs> near Victoria. That boat had sailed. That <laughs> boat had sailed. Um, Nick, let's come back to you in West London. By the way, uh, just so that we know, we can tick that off. How are your folks with all this stuff? You're, living, you're leading this deeply strange for <sighs> peers' life. You know, yeah. you're, you're out doing all this sort of stuff. Yeah. What did they make of it? I think... For my father, it was never the same um, after the Isle of Wight for very many years until the Dream Academy uh, made it into the American charts. I think that was the. Mm. He came back to him. But think before that, he was pretty sure I'd end up in prison or dead. Um, you know, during this period, I was brought back by the police on. A, number of occasions because you know everything you did in the alternative society you know you were either stickering the Leicester Square tube station I got bought back sticking anti-divine light no anti-festival uh, of light which was some Mary Whitehouse thing so we were stickering <laughs> everywhere but we got caught by the and we were brought back by the police and it was like not again you know it went on and on I, I'm thinking about this program I was kind of amazed you know I went to see the dead at Bickershaw or Lincoln Festival they did after they'd played in London and everyone was there. It was brilliant. And um, and on the way back, I, I everyone had gone. I didn't know how to get back. And I suddenly saw Richard Neville and he said, oh, look, John Peel is there with his Jeep. Let's ask him for a lift back to London from Lincoln. And John Peel, of course. You know, this was the counterculture. It's like, not well, not that kid. They <laughs> said, no, OK. So we got in and we he had a wonderful Jeep and he, 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 he bought in the roof. He had these things he could pull down you could sleep in and we stopped somewhere on route. When we got to near London, he said, where would you want to go? And I said, well, I've got to go to school. Could you could you drop me somewhere like in Notting Hill and I'll get down to Gloucester Road? So he said, of course. you know. And he dropped me on the Kensington Church Street and I took a tab of speed and I went straight into school. So, you know, that was... What were my parents thinking? What I mean is it's, it's fantastic. They didn't say you can't possibly mm. go... I suppose Lincoln had taken place over the weekend and I got back on a Monday and I'd managed to convince them somehow I was going with friends. They, they'd become, perhaps for my father, slightly given up, perhaps, mm. but my mother was incredibly supportive of it mm. and believed that it was all going to lead to this flowering of my own artistic right. world and was very keen and, uh, t- t- and very, very supportive. Which, of course, it did. Amazingly. I mean, also, West London at this time, I suppose, for... for, for your dad too it was around uh, then wasn't it I mean thinking you know you got Frestonia maybe a bit later I suppose no, it, Frest- it was later Frestonia but that was that was Hefcott Williams Hefcott Williams everyone, yeah. the Tabernacle yeah, the Tab the Tab was where the Floyd uh, Sid's Floyd played in 66 to try and get yeah. the Rackman to open the squares yeah. Joe Boyd and all those people were protesting to say look we all rent uh, bedsits around the squares but we're not allowed to get into these famous uh, Nottingham right, squares right so for people who don't know Rackman the kind of infamous slum landlord 
landlord who, who owned a big chunks of those buildings and was you know letting them out to, to, to people in horrible conditions exactly. and they're actually beautiful buildings surrounding beautiful squares but it was uh, yeah. so that was part of, I didn't yeah. know that, that was part yeah. of the process too wasn't it and then and then the free school movement and all yeah. that, all that stuff it's all going on in Notting Hill wasn't you're it? right you're right, right. So, and bit which was a um, a counterculture information service that was on mm. Westbourne Park Road. If you get old editions of ITRs, you'll always see Bit, you'll see Release. That was at the top of Elgin Avenue. Um, that was for drug busts and for people. People were always getting busted and they had a fund and the Beatles and Stones and people would put money into that so that there was countercultural people who were living the life could, could also get access to, to legal aid. Yeah, and, and Heathcote Williams and Richard Adams later running that, they were on a list and how to, how to break into a building and squat it and you know where to find squats and first all that time i met him is that right opposite on labrick grove opposite the police station trying to break into a car <laughs> With squat his, it. yeah try it was incredible and i because he was a hippie you know i smiled and then he, he he knew someone i knew and he said come back and i went back to his place which was probably somewhere off labrick grove and uh he had a mirror where you could see that he'd made that you could um that you could see your own aura in it. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty was incredible. But, you know, years later, years later after Fristonia, he went into some kind of mm. decline in what mm. you saw before Whale Nation, before he came up again, and you would see him lying on the street, you know, in a pool of piss, you know, mm. outside the uh, shoe menders, uh, and, you know, you'd, you'd step over him... Mm. And, and they said that all the great graffiti in the mid seventies to late seventies was his work. That was on the great church. Um, it had um, uh, opium is the religion of the people, not religion is the opium of the people. And everyone went, that's that's another of Hefgun's. <laughs> so he was he was doing great work, but he was still, yeah. but he was very down and out. He seemed like uh, one of those seventies. Figures a bit like R.D. Lang, actually, or something. He sort of fell backwards into their own shadow somehow, didn't he? Um, you know, sort of inspirational and sort of working and doing all the right work in the right people in the right places, but somehow their own demons kind of like dragged, oh, yeah. them, dragged them back or something. I they? think the demons are there, you know, like what uh, Jung called the negative anima. You've got the positive side coming up. In, and expressing itself in your highest artistic endeavours and you've got the negative anima that's almost as strong and maybe this is a universal force that mm. probably exists out there in the great world, you know, the great universe beyond and and uh, he was definitely that but he, he came back again, Well mm. Nation, I mean he was, that was so ahead of its time and so brilliant, you know, he, he'd moved to uh, St Germans in, uh, in uh, uh, Cornwall and... Uh, and started work on that book and, and then had, an, had another whole period. And yeah, lots right. of these people came back. Mm. So West London, it was, it was a very fertile place, political. Uh, and 70s are moving on by this time, right? Okay, and then um, let's go back. So, because then the other thing you've got, you've got in Nottingham, of course, is the whole, you've got the whole Afro-Caribbean culture, you've got the whole reggae thing. And then, of course, the clash and all that start, stuff starts to come out. I right. mean, to walk us through that. And then what were you doing? And then how, how did this start to feed into your music? Um... The Jeff Dexter, the DJ, uh, he had said, I'd been writing songs now uh, since I was about 15, 16. I'd been playing them to him and he'd be going, not that one, not this. Yes, this is good. 
uh, after a bit of time, he said, you should have a band. You should have a band. And I know two brothers. They're brilliant. You should meet them. So I said, OK. So that day we were doing the uh, free, fest, free High Park concert with Toots and the Maytals and uh, McGuinn, Roger McGuinn, was headlining. And up came this kid with red fuzzy hair and said, hey, uh, my name's Sam. I'm a bass player. I said, I said uh, Jeff says, you know, about, you know, the band. So it was like, I said, oh, well, tonight I'm um, DJing at Dingwall's because I'd left school now. Let's see if I left school at 16. I'm now a DJ at Dingwall's 17. And uh, he said, um, why don't you, I said, oh, can you put my name on the door? I'll come to Dingwall's. And so he came and then we formed this band and he brought his brother and we started playing and we started teaching ourselves how to sing uh, harmonies and things. And, um, Mark Boland uh, heard us via Jeff Dexter and Tony Howard, who managed Mark Boland, and uh, Tony became our manager. And Mark heard our stuff and said, uh, hey, I'm making a new album. Why don't you guys come and sing backups on it? So, so we went into Air Studios above Oxford Circus, high above Oxford Circus. They, they were... They were, they were, they were uh, doing the Beatles uh, live at Shea Stadium. I mean, the Beatles long since split up, but that was there. I remember, and, and, and Brian Ferry was there too. Uh, they were all in, we only saw their names up on the board, but we were, wow. We went into a, a room not much bigger than this, a very small, where Mark was, it had a big studio machine, and he was, he said, right, we start, he slowed down the tape machine, and then he got us to sing in one key, and then he'd speed it up, and then he'd get us to sing in another key, and I kept saying, it's not in tune. He'd go, Okay, this is where you learn. It's about the vibe. So he just he 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 his 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 own energy motivated us. It was a real lesson. That's what's going down on tape. Don't worry about the tuning. We'll get. And when he played it all back, it was all slow and fast and all in different things all together and made this amazing sound. And 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 he was right. The vibe was there. So he said. Tonight, I'm going down to the Roxy, this new club. I said, oh, yeah, I've heard about it. And he said, come down with us. So we, the three of us went down with him. And um, I saw uh, immediately uh, uh, Johnny Rotten and Billy Idol having a kicking fight, <laughs> which was fantastic. Who, who and, won? Uh, uh, Rotten, no doubt about it. No doubt about. It. I mean, it was long before Billy. Billy was all hair at that point. You know, it was that was his only thing at that time. But you know, we walked into the to the room. The adverts were going to come on. The Damned were there. Mark was there to see the Damned. First thing, everybody loved Mark, and they all got because they said the new look Mark Bowen when he cut his hair. He's one of us. And the first thing that came on was um, Anarchy for the UK, and I just. I'd read about it in the Melody Maker, but I thought, my God, this is like my generation. But my generation's my generation. So immediately, you know, we had long hair and we were three-part harmony band. So this is this isn't going to work. It's it's all changed. Um, got a got a change. So we started. Our album was about to come out, uh, but then immediately we got our electric guitars. We changed, you know, and tried it. Uh, it didn't work, uh, you know, but. That then, um, uh, I, 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 of course, I went to see uh, one concert somewhere, and backstage there was this guy looking fantastic in a leather jacket, a white frilly shirt, his arm around some beautiful girl with a blue and white striped top, and uh, 
he said hello and the guy next to me my friend went that's Mick Jones I said oh uh, I just didn't really know him as Jones you see before I knew him as Mick and then he went so oh, I, I know who you are we were in a roundhouse together you didn't think I was cool because I couldn't roll a joint it was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and I was like he sure can roll one now um, and I was like God. Anyway, they, they were yeah, they were incredible. I went to see them, and uh, of course, immediately and all that stuff. And we 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 um, the, my band split up, and I went to New York, where um, the new wave was happening. And so it was Talking Heads, Blondie, and everyone. And that then I there I was like, now I've got to change what I'm doing, and um, form my own band and uh, electric band. And I came back and put this band, the Act together that Joe Boyd ended up producing on Hannibal Records. And meantime, the underground itself has kind of like started to metamorphosize. It, 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 and, it and has. Morph, it? it has. It's very interesting. The key figures, Boss Goodman, I mean, lots of these key figures were involved, were producing the demos of the new bands. They'd seen it coming, they were on it. It had come from pub rock. We'd had the Kilburn and the High Roads, which was Dury's band, Ian Dury's band and things. You know, and I'd seen them with the uh, Dr. Fielder when I was DJing at the round at the uh, Dingwalls. So, you know, it had changed, it had changed. But a lot of people had become casualties. The end of Ladbroke Grove, uh, the end of Portobello Road, was very scuzzy now and there was an awful lot of heroin and a lot of casualties um and the ones that couldn't make the change seemed to um seemed to disappear and uh and 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 a lot of a lot of them died and a lot of them rejected the new uh scene but others didn't others embraced it and and you know because the bands of the grove were were the fairies and hawkwind and they, even they, uh, got totally influenced and moved on. Yeah, but they, they had they been it on, the band. They? they did. They took it on, yeah, and yeah. and Farron, of course, did. Yeah, he uh, he. I met. He was in New York when I got there, and he he was then living, I think, in San Francisco or something. So he was totally into it. He was very hard. He gave me some very heavy sort of advice. Yeah, kid, you better fucking it. You know, it was like some <laughs> terrible. You know, have a fucking car crash. Why don't you? You know, then that, that's going to make everything different. Yeah, that will, that will help you. You know, everything was sort of, you know, it's very you, punk. Do you think so? And that punk spirit and the it was the darkening of the dream somehow that the whatever it was that had propelled Flower Power, whether it was acid or the times. The sort of was it that the momentum of that dream was was running out now or something, and maybe the bad drugs and the you know the difficult po- politics, the you know lots of p- poverty in the UK and stuff like that. Was it that for sure? Also, the flower power thing had metamorphosized into this kind of rather baggy, blousy thing of prog rock, mm-hmm. which. You know, you could hear how great those musicians were, the Soft Machine guys on the Kevin Ayers track we played earlier on. I mean, they were great musicians, but uh, that the, a lot of that, the, 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 the musicianship had blo- blo- got bloated into this really sort of... And, and money and huge tours in America. And, and quite rightly, a revolution was needed. And the revolution was the young guys going, anyone can do this. We don't mm. care about that. We don't care about the sound. Everybody you know, wanting this. We don't care about a triple album. We're just going to make these two-minute songs. What interests me is how, how punk. It's still viewed as kind of hip, whereas hippies aren't. And yet punk didn't have 
to me, anything didn't have as large an influence on the world as the movement that grew out of beats into flower power and, and beat music and rock and roll, you know. But it actually, on another way, it was an extension of it. But if you see an American uh, producer of a TV, famous TV show, you know, now, or someone at the, or Al Pacino, you know, they'll have a kind of mock punk haircut <laughs> because it's, it's groovy, it's mm. still hip, mm. but it's ridiculous. It's not, it's no hipper than, you know, and, yeah. and you've got to take it on its artistic merit and what really worked and what was great. And as we heard, I mean, that, that Search and Destroy still sounds current and blew, brilliant. Blew the cobwebs away, didn't it? 71, we, yeah, 72, we, sorry. We had Barry Kane in and, um, who did yeah. uh, Flexipop magazine in the 80s and, of course, he was the, um, was he the punk correspondent for Record Mirror. Mm. And he, he talks about that time, the punk times. You know, he said it's an incredibly short period of time. Right. You know, it's like two years maximum right. and 18 right. months. You know, that of course, kind of... Of course, the, the Pistols were really doing it. <laughs> and then, and then it actually, it went to the to the clash. I mean, the, mm. by London calling, that was, you know, that was its complete break, crossover moment worldwide, I'd say, mm. maybe. Yeah, because they went massive in America, didn't they, and stuff, you know. And actually, I suppose, so it was long overdue, you know, it evolved because, you say, this baggy, puffed-up thing, uh, and, um, you know, as prog rock ever going to be cool again? Funnily enough, actually, I went into um, a pub in Shoreditch last year, and it popped in for a pee, and there was a sound check going on, and I put my head around the corner, and there was a Japanese guy there with long hair and a triple-neck guitar... Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So it's pro- very cool again. <laughs> so yeah. Frog's back. No, prog, 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 is, prog is definitely back. The thing about the internet and downloading streaming is that nobody, as a generation, doesn't care whether that's a demo mm. of a Nick Drake track. You know, we used to be so, hey, there were only three Nick Drake albums and each one, you know, these are the tracks and these are the other ones. Now nobody cares about that and they'll stack that next to Beethoven's Fifth, next to right. Search and Destroy. Yeah. That's gone out of the window, hasn't mm. it? That sort of really caring about these... Uh, there's still no excuse for triple neck guitar, though, is there really? I don't know. If you, could, if you <laughs> want to play bass and 12 string <laughs> and you're six. a long-haired Japanese, you look very cool. Very Actually, cool. He did look Ma- Ma- Hey, Mark Ronson, doesn't he have a player? He was playing a double neck the other day. You know, oh, I, right. I, I, yeah. I know, yeah. Okay. Oh, no comment. The keytar's back. Marcello Papini, my friend, has just got keytar for Christmas. Oh, yeah. I think I bid against her for that. Did you? Yeah, there's oh, one on Catawiki, 160 uh, uh, quid. I'll tell her. Damn yeah. it, she got Damn, it. Yeah. fighting for a keytar. Can keto? we go back to Nick Drake and the guitar? Yes. Do you own a Nick Drake guitar? I do. What happened was I was, um, I left school, 16, and I, I, I had a Yamaha guitar, and that was what I was writing my songs on, and I was determined to work all summer and uh, buy a Martin because Martins were, I was, you know, this was 1974. So um, I worked at the RCA record factory um, and um, at the top of Labrick Grove. And, uh, you know, it wasn't good if you were small and you were going to be carrying hundreds of records, but we managed to finagle quite a I have an entire uh, Elvis Presley uh, collection <laughs> anyway uh, and a few young people were also there um, and when I'd got my 200 quid together which is what a Martin would have cost um, Jeff Dexter came over and said uh, oh listen by the way you know that wonderful album one of his favourite albums uh, Brighter Later he said you know that guitar that I've always shown you on the cover I said yeah he said um the photographer, Nigel Weymouth, um, who took the picture, that's his guitar. And um, he, uh, 
and Nick hated having his picture taken, so he'd always just take out that guitar to relax him. him and, you know. um, anyway, he's, he's completely broken. He wants to sell it. And, um, you know, if you want, you could put some money into that. So I said, well, I mean, this was, you know, nobody... Nick Drake was still alive. So nobody was really interested. I adored Nick Drake, but no—I mean, no one I knew knew him. Oh, just a very few people around. It was much more John Martin they seemed to know. And um, so I, I bought it, and uh, and then I wrote all the things on it. You know, Life in a Northern Town, all those things. You wrote that on my guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my guitar. That was—I played it on. Every, you know, I still play. It's got uh, high strings on it now, but it's—it's it, uh, yeah. It wasn't his, but it, but it's... It's connected. It was new enough. Yeah, no, it's it was... part of his it, it, it was Eric Clapton's. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't his. It, Eric Clapton left the pheasantry and... Um, yeah, Eric Clapton left the pheasantry, uh, where in, that was a hit place to live in the 60s, in the mid-60s, and Nigel Weymouth took it over, and um, he... Uh, when he took it over, because I guess Clapton was now in cream and was now moving on to higher things... Um, he said, oh, there's a guitar left in the cupboard. And uh, they called up Clapton, or Clapton's guy, and they said, what's, what's it look like? And he said, oh, it's a brown guild. And he went, oh, you can keep it. So that was that. So, Nick, let's move on. So you form your own band. Yeah. And, well, you've already formed your own band, but now you're actually trying to make a band which is more of the time. Yes. Because the times have rapidly changed, yes, they actually. Yes. So, so, yeah. so let's move on. So what tells West London at this time and you at that time and how, this, how it turned into... It's the next thing. Funnily enough, still you've got all the Floyd living all around there, and Peter Jenner's managing. Uh, you know, um, by '79, uh, he's managing the Clash, and he'd managed the Floyd early on, and so you know, you. Um, they, they, um, David Gilmore, I'd met him already, and he'd said, if you need someone to uh, join your band, my brother would be great uh, on guitar. And I said, I, I, I don't want a guitarist. I'm, I'm the guitarist. And I'm looking for a keyboard player. But six months later, it was just still me and the drummer. So I <laughs> said, so, all right, give him a go. And so they, that whole world sort of opened up. Um, and so a lot of seeing the wall and all those people were living around um, Notting Hill and... Uh, and this, and I suddenly, you know, this was like I felt I was much more coming to my own time, but it didn't work. The album got a, uh, got a four star review on Rolling Stone. I went over to talk to Timothy White, who was a brilliant journalist. He loved the album, but it didn't work. And this was my second shot. I'd had two albums, and uh, neither of them had worked, and I couldn't work out why. And, and I had to do some proper thinking and realised I'm just copying other people. And um, I, I, that was how I learnt, but copying was no good. You got really good at copying, and by the time you put your new song out, it was like the last album by that person. Mm. And, you know, so that was brought about a real moment of I've got to knuckle down and try to find my own voice and I'd met a keyboard player through an ad in the Melody Maker I was classically trained uh, Gilbert Gabriel and we took about a year just playing our own finding our own voice and when we came out from that our hair was long because we been, you know we were back to that uh, and I said well let's just keep it you know we haven't got any clothes that's cool we got what we you know things and um, and uh, everyone else is playing you know sort of punk uh, funk is playing, you know, some white boy funk, and it's, 
you know, uh, Spandau and uh, Duran Duran, and uh, it's not. So let's just be ourselves. What mm. does it matter? And we took it, our demos to every single, every major or independent record company, and not one of them was in the least bit interested. And then after about a year, Jeff Travis from Rough, Rough Trade said, "All right, let me just take it. I, I think this needs money. I'm going to take it to America." And he came back and said. All right, Warner Brothers and Sony are interested, and I think you should. And I wanted to go with Warner Brothers because they'd had Neil Young, mm. uh, REM, uh, everyone I loved actually. They, they'd they'd had, and so um, the funny thing was that we ended up being called a hippie band. And uh, within six months, ecstasy was starting to percolate through, and you know, I'd come across it with. You know, Dinner with Andy Wall in New York and, and found out. Dinner with Andy Wall. You just dropped that in well, there. I, I love, love that. Because, love because that. he asked me, what, what would you like, kid? Can I do anything for you in New York? And I said, yeah, I'd get me some ecstasy. And he said, call the uh, call the factory. And I called the factory. I, I think we should probably cut, not cut this one out. No, but, no, uh, don't keep going. Uh, and, and I called the factory the next day and uh, and he said, I'm so sorry, kid. There's nothing, nothing around, you know. But, but I was aware that there was a new. Mm. And actually, we were in sync with the new times mm. that were coming, which was uh, new psychedelia. Mm. So, and I actually felt probably more, or equally at home, maybe more at home in that than uh, than where I'd been in in my interim. Yeah, because of course, new summer of love. Yeah, all that was coming, mm -hmm. wasn't it? You know, and um, and a rediscovery of all those sort of values with the different music, different technology, and all that sort of stuff, right? And, and these big gatherings of people in the countryside. It was all very countercultural, wasn't it? Actually? Totally, Wonderful. a different kind of underground, right? Right, but also fueled by the substances. I think it's time to hear a, a Dream Academy song. Um, Nick, just tell us about this one, the demonstration. This is the story of the demonstration at the Oz trial and somewhere in the mid-80s I was in my flat in Labrick Grove as I was by then having got the Dream Academy was happening and we had life in a northern town and I suddenly found myself writing a bit right back there to that summer of um, 71 and um, writing about the demonstration and how we ended up at the Old Bailey and uh, even telling the story of how uh, the speeches that were made there on the last verse. How does it feel um, hearing that now and that taking you back to that 1971 and all those times? It's it's so it. It is exact. I mean, not the style of the music necessarily, but the you know that last verse when we were outside waiting to hear whether the you know hundred of us waiting to hear whether the Oz editors had been found guilty or not and they were to emerge with their hair shorn and paraded in front of us and we were when the rioting kicked off while we were waiting Warren who was a San Francisco gay 
who was the boyfriend of one of the editors, he, he stood up and he said, look on this building. And we looked up at the scales of justice on the roof of the courtroom of, of the Old Bailey. And he said, from all over London, you can see them clearly weighing the balance of truth in each hand. You can see her. But the funny thing is, as you get closer to the building, they start to disappear until when you go inside justice has disappeared completely and we just and that was the last verse of that song so it's it and that's those were the times mm. well the rest for you I mean it was just the times were in some ways just beginning of course with the dream academy and all that's come since um we are out of time here um uh, sadly but when you think back and, of course, you still live in West London, don't you? You still live in the place you were born. I mean, you still live in the, the area you were born. You still see it. And, of course, it's gone through these radical changes, hasn't it? And I think it's probably important to remember when we, we talk about this stuff, there is still an underground. It's, there's still an underground in London, not the two, but actually it's probably in New Cross or Peckham. Definitely. In the Council of State is. or in yes. Clapton or yes. something. It's on moved. all over England in pockets, all yeah. over Britain in pockets. Over, yeah, exactly, yeah. in Scotland. And, yes, and uh, it keeps uh, welling know. up through the arts. You see it mm. in, the, in the visual arts, you see it in the music. You mm. keep seeing, it, it, you can't keep it down. You can't keep it down. And even, you know, strange political events like we've recently had here, um, yeah. Brexit and stuff, you know, you think well, it's, it's gonna, there's going to be an artistic response to that. And, and, and I mean... Um, you know the, the the climate change, the climate extinction change. rebellion are yeah. always counterculture, yeah. and that's the big story. That's you know that's story. that's what's going to blow this political yeah. bollocks yeah. out of the yeah. way, because yeah. the real story is this: it's not lying and cheating to try and get power. Yeah. It's uh, it's what's yeah. what we're going to do about it. Yeah, and Soho Radio actually devoted a whole. Uh, they had the uh, extinction rebellion took over for a week or two, wasn't it? And right. actually, when they were in there, it was, it really felt like that, didn't it? Actually, they were screen printing their own stuff in the in the room, right. and they were you know they were out there straight just doing it and broadcasting live. So, it's always there. It's all the English, the British, the London, the underground, or the world underground. It's still going on, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's. Will the the conscious? Uh, it's w- willing itself mm. into consciousness through uh, uh, through the arts, I think, and through right. through people who are paying attention. That's what that, that was a young thing, yeah. you know. The subconscious strata is willing itself is 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 emerging through people who are paying attention. And perhaps it's also always somewhere that we're not quite aware of as well. So maybe it's not in Notting Hill anymore. It's not no, in Soho. And no, it's not it in Chelsea. That's right. No, no, it's true. So, um, Nick, thank you so much. You walked us through your own personal uh, route through the <laughs> English underground. And uh, how was that? It was, it was exhausting. But no, <laughs> but it, it, it was it was it was it was wonderful for me to go back there. Because it was such, they were such formative times, and they've informed my my whole life. Yeah. So it was. Thank you for asking me. It was a really great opportunity. Thank you. So there you have it, the amazing life and countercultural times of Nick Laird Clues. What a story! What a set of stories. And of course, we didn't even get on to the 80s and 90s uh, with the Dream Academy. Maybe we should ask Nick to come back sometime and tell us what that was like. You've been listening to the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can find out more about what we do at www.bureauoflostculture.com. Look forward to sharing some more stories with you next time. 